0: Welcome to Open Plaza. In this episode, Lucila Crenna talks to Eve Fairbanks about her book, The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning. For more information
1: about this episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HDI Open Plaza
2: podcast. My name is Lucila Krenna, and I am assistant professor in Christian ethics and public theology at Wesley Theological Seminary. And I'm here today with Eve Fairbanks, an essayist and former political writer and the writer of The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning, her debut book. Welcome, Eve. It is so good to have you here with us.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to chat with you.
2: (laughs) Eve, you've written um, a truly stunning book. Um, It's nonfiction, but novelistic. It's intimate and sweeping. Um, And the praise comes from uh, towering figures as distinct as Francis Fukuyama of End of History fame and Kiesa Lehman, the fantastic writer who has said that your book, is I love this a rigorous feat of wonder, love, and risk. And I am just delighted to get to speak um to you about this work. Um, and I I wonder, um it is it is a difficult and I think um intentionally so book to, to summarize. I would be yes. unto it because <laughs> it is a story that um that 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 wants others to be drawn into the story. Um, So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the book, if you could locate us a bit in your book.
1: Yeah,
0: I think in some ways it's a book about how people start to remember the past differently as it moves into the past and how that then changes the way I don't know the 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 whole lenses through which they see the present. And um it's set in South Africa. It follows three main people who are real. <laughs> I sometimes will use the word characters in narrative journalism, but they're they're real people um, who I spent years with um going to their homes, their parents' homes, um, speaking to their friends and talking a ton with them about. So two of them were born, were teenagers under apartheid, under um, racial segregation in South Africa. And, uh, and then one is the daughter of one of those women. And so it deals with a kind of a moment in those two people's lives, Dipuo and Christo. So Christo was an Afrikaner who became essentially one of the last classes, last years of soldiers recruited drafted not recruited he was drafted into the apartheid army um which at the time was doing very brutal police policing work so to speak in black neighborhoods um so that was him he was a farm a young man who grew up on a farm white south african then de lived in soweto which is the biggest very very historic black township a lot of jazz comes from there and stuff in johannesburg and she Dropped out of school as many people did around fourteen, and became an activist in Soweto for a freedom fighter. Um, and the two of their stories, which I only found out right, right, right near the end of my relation—well, not my relationships, my um, interviews, my formal kind of interactions with them—is that they both had experiences on a particular hill, kind of a mind up in Johannesburg, that were very, very, that would alter the whole shape of their lives um, uh, and uh, and then it's and then the pool gave birth to a daughter right before apartheid's end and that daughter Malaika became known as what South Africans call a born free so the born free generation can be people who were born around 1989 even or 90 but the idea is they have no conscious memories or few of racial segregation and a lot of um Kind of tabula rasa dreams were projected onto them, really understandable yearnings and hopes um, that they would be able to walk through this landscape that's so shaped and impacted by the kind of leavings of, of long dead segregators and creators and make something really new of it and not and see it differently and thereby almost, in a way, redeem the um, Redeem the suffering of their, of their, the, the parents had undergone. And so we just, we follow those three people, Christo Dipo and Dipo's daughter Malaika over time as they, initially in the 1980s, it was not at all clear how fast apartheid would end. It, it kind of suggested in the way that a lot of like political trends do in America. It's, I think, a kind of like eternal like Gordian knot like a hopeless bind like it'll just never it's you cannot uh, I remember talking to a Reagan era conservative kind of top level diplomat and he said you know I really I visited there and I and I hated it it just clearly was completely unjust but it also seemed like you couldn't really undo it so so these two people grew up in, in an atmosphere where they thought they would be adults under apartheid. That was what they imagined, that was what they planned for. And then they suddenly had, were relating to each other, white and people of color in, in very different, very complex ways. And events happened that they didn't expect after the end of apartheid. It was both easier and better and even happier than was sort of imaginable. And 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 more difficult in ways that that people didn't anticipate. So I've tried to write just a book about, about that type of change, that type of demographic change, that type of change in morals and and what the aftermath really, really, really feels like. I wonder if you could
2: locate us a bit more in just how radical that change was for, for those of us who may not be familiar with South African history. Just yeah. how- being that change was?
0: Yeah, so spatial segregation in South Africa was um, explicitly inspired by Jim Crow. That was where they got the idea for Black universities and white universities, white beaches and Black beaches, which did not exist even in Zimbabwe and in other colonies, which still had a lot of terrible racism. But However, it was really, really extreme in South Africa, and you still come and you see that legacy of that spatial segregation, um, you were not permitted to, if you were black or um, mixed race, so-called colored or, of, or Indian, of Indian heritage, you were not allowed to walk really in white neighborhoods without a pass, like a hall pass signed by an employer. You could be arrested for just walking there. Um, you were not allowed to be in a province for more than 48 hours that was not allocated to your race group so imagine like virginia virginia is black and maryland is white and like you you and uh you know north Carolina is hispanic you could not um be in uh virginia as a latina for more than 48 hours there was just this extreme extreme segregation and there was the claim right toward the end that um that the Black provinces constituted a different nation, different nations. And this the way the apartheid government actually sent embassies and ambassadors, and they took away those people's passports. Now, this was never recognized by any foreign country, but it was um, policed and it was implemented. And and then effect so those. Uh, miscegenation, so to speak, was illegal. You could, you could really be arrested for having sex with someone of a different race in like 1986, 1987. Can you imagine? Yeah. And then, you know, over the course of four, three, four, five, six years, those laws started to be removed. But um, the parliament was all white. The cabinet, the president was 100% white. There was a different parliament for Black people, you know, uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. until until uh, 1994, when suddenly you had. In one day, you, you had a parliament change from being 100% white to being 80% people of color, literally, literally overnight. I mean, Ooh. then they had to be. But so it was a very, very extreme. Um,
2: and and this. Um... I think again for a lot of the, those of us on the outside, the end of apartheid is this sort of eschatological moment, this, this great end to the story. Um, this miracle, maybe, maybe for some of us, um, the truth and reconciliation commission is sort of right after maybe that's the end of the story where you know the reckoning happened and it was this wonderful process. And in, in, in your book, um. It, it does, there does seem to be a, a sense that you're writing after the end of maybe not history, but the story um, where yeah, would like to have so, stopped. Right. <laughs> um, and, and TRC actually is, is mentioned in one or two stories in the background, but it's not really a, a crucial part of the story that you tell. I wonder if you might tell us a bit more about that. Dynamic of writing after the end of the story is supposed to have you know the the, the 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 happily ever after.
0: Yeah, I think it's partly you know the second half of the book is about what what people expect out of a miracle, a secular miracle, and or you know whatever, and mm-hmm. and what what are, what a real miracle comes disguised looking like, and you know it's hard to really recognize and doesn't come in the guise that we might anticipate. Um, the whole miracle, uh, rhetoric came to feel like a real burden to South Africans because in point of fact, there was a lot of stuff that they learned. And I'm talking right now about the government that they learned, um, after the fact and after the sort of like stamp had been put on this miracle story that the promised land was... didn't have a lot of milk or honey and that this had been concealed from them by the outgoing government. That part of the reason the white regime had been willing to give up the state, not the only reason, I think there was a real process of of giving over and giving up a power that was amazing, but was that uh, it was almost bankrupt and it was like kind of nice to think that it was going to be somebody else's problem to solve. And so, you know, what the whole miracle rhetoric really interests me because it implies that again, there was this kind of coming out of Sinai into this, this promised land that was at least, you know, maybe the, the the leaders are are still green and there's problems in the community and arguments, but at least it's fertile. At least it's a at least it's like a decent foundation, a good place. And that was not what. Um, Black South Africans got it all. They got a state that was designed not for them remotely or end an economy and so on. So, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it's funny, people don't talk about it here. And I think that that has two sides. First, I think it speaks to its success, um, that it probably was, you know, some some things that happen can be useful if we forget about them or if we almost underrate them. You
1: know? yes. <laughs> um, yes.
0: And so there's that. I also think that the side that turned out to be the most valuable for South Africans was the truth part. Mm. Mm. And the idea that the truth would lead in any predictable way to, diff to, to X or Y types of better, nicer feelings. Did not really happen, and um, but the, these
1: sort of hearings, these truth hearings, were they were important. Um, uh, I want to pick
2: up on two themes, but let me let me first. Yeah. Last last bit that you just said about the the truth part that that was the important um, that, that was maybe the most beneficial one. Um, it strikes me that throughout your book, one of the themes is um, the inability to tell a story or the unwillingness to tell a story or the 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 um, the exhaustion of a story, um, the end of it, and what we do after. And so, um, for example, the 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 truth that the miracle was not really a miracle. Um, that the that the nation um, was was not in this pristine state, um, or that the foundations were not as secure as um, as we would have wished, it seemed a difficult one to let go of. So that sometimes people were willing to, or or um, there was, as, as you described,
1: sometimes almost a preference for um, the
2: the Black people who came to power to blame themselves for their inability to run this country rather than to uh, in some ways um, hmm. sort of give a lie to the story that, that or, or show the lie of the story that um, South Africa had been this um, pristine place. It was better to to take the blame for um for for the minoritized group coming to power than to than to than to twist the story from the beginning. Am I reading that right, or how would you say that?
0: Yeah, I mean something that when I first got here, I read a couple of. And by here, you mean South Africa? In you, South Africa. I'm currently Africa. here. Yeah, so I've yes. been here for 13 years. Yeah. <clears throat> when I first moved here, it was 2009. I remember reading a Time Magazine story that actually clipped, if you can imagine physically. Um, <laughs> don't do that okay. much anymore, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically, and the thesis was like, the reporter went out to some rural black areas. And, and people said, I think I actually felt like my life was better under apartheid. I wish that they would come back and rule us again. And I remember feeling really shocked and like,
1: Jesus, you know, is this a real, what is this? And I, you hear that a lot. Um, there was a degree here of degree, a, a frequency, I mean, the a sort of proportion of, of
0: self-blame that Black leaders um, would express or that, that Black people would sort of blame the community, blame others in the community who were um, irresponsible or, you know, had the wrong views X, Y, or Z, or behaved badly or were corrupt,
1: or whatever it was and it was um kind of i heard it in so many contexts and i really tried to go
0: the book has a lot of um anecdotes that are sort of anonymous from people who are not named and these are people who would just be my friends and we would be having like a very frank conversation and I felt it was really important to include those in some way um, because those types of things often just miss journalistic efforts. They just get left out because there's no name you can attribute. And I came people came to explain to me, but I also I think came to perceive that there was something weirdly empowering in a way about self-blame that could that could be quite sort of vicious um, turning in on oneself. and the reason is this, it's, it maintains the idea that the sort of substructure and the 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 gift, the thing that you fought for, the country, um, that that you actually helped build but were not had no t- direction, you know, had no command over. Um, that that is good, that it has good bones, that it's it's that it it it's really. Just could be turned around, could be made fruitful for everybody. That the promise could be fulfilled, if only somehow you behaved differently, you acted differently, you were more responsible, you figured it out, you did X, Y, or Z. As opposed, and, and there's something you know. There's a lot of like discussion in the U.S. I find about sort of oh, get this from certain t- types of commentators, but. You know, minorities want to blame, you know, they want to say that America's terrible and it's systemically racist and horrible and ruined and, and and, that that, you know, makes them feel good or whatever. Like, it actually, it's so burdensome to really face, if that's a area, one of many truths <laughs> that you do have to face, because then it's like, you know that you're being held up to at least for a while, the sort of image of those who came before you, which gets quite burnished, gets more burnished as it goes back into the past and forget mm-hmm. how corrupt white the white regime was. It, it looks very operational. It looks very unjust, but very efficient. You're going to get held up to them, but you have this, this thing that you're trying to operate, this society and run it that's not really operable. You're not going to get it off the ground. And so there are some realities in South Africa that if you, it's one thing to kind of come and hear it once and think, oh, that sounds right. But to live with it day after day after day, this this reality, it is so exhausting that you,
1: I have so much, I so understand why you would start to inhabit A story about the country like it's all the fault of certain
0: competent black people you know Mm -hmm. that 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 is obviously reductive that appears more kind of simplistic than than people really are but it's it's like a it's like a buoy
2: the power of a story to give meaning and to to Mm -hmm. a sense of agency at least or a sense you often say of, of understanding at least um more than um, then reality would give you a hope. Mm. You know, this is something I am from Argentina and uh, Argentina has a long history of this kind of feeling of um, if only we were more like the Swiss, the country would really take right. off. Yeah, right. <laughs> if, yeah. <laughs> if only we were, our, you know, we we, um, we weren't Argentinian. Um, it's funny
0: because sometimes you hear people saying that and you're like, you take a step back and, and you're like it's so obvious why you know Argentina from my perspective why Argentina yeah. wasn't dealt the same hand and couldn't be the Swiss and but like it's it's so desirable as a as an idea that, that you end up inhabiting a sort of more simple narrative than than you really know is true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know
2: I'm interested um, as we talk about the the kinds of stories that truthfully tell the reality. I'm I'm interested in maybe you sharing with us a little bit about your writing process both because I know that a lot of the people who will hear us are um, academics who really wrestle with the writing process but also because from what I've heard in other uh, conversations that you've had it strikes me that writing this book um, I'm going to describe it theologically here. It seemed a bit of a conversion for you in terms of the re- finding the genre for it, that that the telling of the story, you had to find the way to tell it that would be faithful to what you were experiencing. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about uh, those drafts, maybe, left
1: to the wayside and um, yeah. the way that you finally... Um, enjoyed this yeah um it's so that i was
0: working on this book for 10 years um which was not the original intent and i had ideas or let's say that i had been taught certain ideas about long-form journalism and journalism in general which is Off the record interviews
1: are in general bad. Um, You should try not to do them. Um, You use what has been given to you in a formal interview
0: context. And there's ways that you set that up. And, And these, I think that there's reasons that these exist and there's elements that are very, very important around establishing boundaries, establishing consent and so on. And, um, and also, uh, finally that, that you're kind of looking, let's say you have an idea of something you want to write. You have a, an argument or a concept or something you've observed or, and then you kind of look for exemplars of it. And so you think, okay, uh, I need to, you know, want to write about, um, a high level official in the Black-led government or whatever, because that's a certain type of role that I need to write about. And yeah, I ended up writing a full version of this book, like 100,000 Words, in 2015, and my publisher actually accepted it, Um, but I then scrapped it because, and I don't want to say there's some huge moment of like, I realized I, I, you know,
1: it wasn't true to whatever, but It really, it was kind of like doing it
0: that whole way forced me to confront how I, the the discomfort I had always felt even working in Washington, as a reporter in Washington, about truth and objectivity in journalism. Mm -hmm. That could be a whole other discussion, but (laughs) people do not say in a formal interview context, what they say outside of it and you get whole shadows and whole shades and whole tones that are just missing from i think of this my mother is is is, is politically conservative um I struggle with personally but
1: uh she's quite politically conservative and she, she uh
0: voted for Trump as a joke, like, because she hates liberals so much she wanted to play a prank she voted like a prank. And then and she really regretted elements of it and then it was, I mean, it was horrible like inflict that.
1: And I just it was something that I really didn't see and then
0: I, I wanted to write some about it and she didn't want to be outed as a Trump supporter because she lives in a very liberal area. She, and. And and then and I was told um, you can't you just can't write that if no one's willing to go on record saying I voted for Trump as a joke and now I feel horrible because I inflicted this horrible man upon the entire country and possibly broken our nation and I was like who's gonna say that on their you know who's gonna put their name to that and so um, I uh, what I ended up doing is I went back and I sat with myself for like two months and I thought about all of the things I had ever said to anyone. I tried to spontaneously Mm. saying, uh, you know, I'd call someone in the U S and say, you, you won't believe it was so, I heard the most fascinating story, you know, at a dinner party yesterday in South Africa. And that was all the stuff that I wrote down that I would naturally want to tell for its paradoxical nature and that it really touched me ultimately wasn't trying to prove an exegesis and Mm -hmm. um so these three stories that i that i talk about are
1: intertwined with a lot of um i don't want to say anecdotal material um but ideas claims memories
0: longings, disappointments that I overheard, even on a, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's how I ended up doing that. I also ended up writing the the whole book, rewriting it as a letter to someone, um, which also completely broke me out of like, is this a memoir? Is this a, this type of journalism? And it was just more like, it was a very close friend of mine from Kenya who had a lot of interest in South Africa, but also a bit of distance. And just thought, what do I, what do I want to say to this person? How would I explain this to him? Just him. And he was over WhatsApp. It was, that- was over WhatsApp. So <laughs> this is I, wrote, what- I, I wrote a lot of the book, like, well, okay. So I would sometimes write bits in the notes app or in word and then send them on the WhatsApp, but I wrote significant portions of what I think Reads is like a real book not like a yes. business with my thumbs not, case, not so- only as uh, not only yeah. as a real book as
2: pure poetry so Aww. yeah it's um it's it's I'm re- so curious what you thought of it mhm yes um there's there's a quality so I kept coming back to um um Margaret Urban Walker is a feminist philosopher who uh, just, uh, I think has written really compelling works. And at at one point she speaks um, of um, the the kind of society that we want to live in, or or the the kind of of ideal that she would um, encourage us to think about, not as an ideal, that's a sort of um, abstract concept that then we judge reality by, um, but that our society would be one where that survives transparency, where
1: I love that, yeah.
2: Where if we were able to really, to, if if people were were able to um, hear and tell each other's stories and say, "Yep, this is this is the arrangement that we choose," right? where we wouldn't need to lie to ourselves or to one another about about the arrangement in the social arrangement in which we are. That that's the society that we aim for. And I find that your book uh, does that. Um it's sort of
1: hmm.
2: what you're aiming for is for your text to serve to, to to survive transparency, or the story that you tell to survive transparency. Um and and I wonder about the now now. I'm going to um, do what you don't do and do draw sort of two archetypes <laughs> or two two narratives right but there's 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 a narrative um that is uh, like the murder mystery plot where we find the murderer and he or she is now taken out of the community and we return to a, a state of, of moral purity or or the hero story right where um the hero I, I, either the, the you know the dis- disciplined a military man or the um, uh, activist leader—they um, in obviously very different ways are the heroes of a story, um, and 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 everything else finds coherence around them. And the story that that you write is one that does not have that kind of clear arc, that kind of clear protagonism. And yet, all of or many many of the characters, especially the secondary characters, I think the primary characters wrestle a bit more with this, but are are trying to find themselves in a murder mystery story or in a hero story. And it's the, That's the- so true. Story.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so it's so funny when you say it that way. That it's something that just would like hit me like like waves. Like you're standing, you know, getting hit over and over. Here was that nobody is willing to at least not try to be the hero of their own life. And it's, and it's so fascinating to me how on an individual level, we encourage everybody to do this, everybody to live their truth, everybody to have their Joseph Campbell, their hero's journey, everybody to, you know, um, and yet kind of when we think about like, like institutional dynamics or structural dynamics or like national politics or anything, we don't really acknowledge just that everyone's on this mission to like, that nobody really, nobody's going to like easily go down as the villain. And, and it's not even in a way like, you know, I'm full of, not necessarily in a way of sort of, I have white pride. I'm not going to let you take that away from me that I'm not proud. It's more like, I just think it's, it's, it's natural for us to recognize on the individual level that, that people do want a way to feel like a a hero, some glory, <laughs> some rising above, and then and then you have a type of maelstrom where it doesn't feel like everyone can feel that way at the same time. But um, I also think I think you're right about. I was
1: just having this discussion with a South African friend of mine today about. Um, The pre- the continual presence of discussion of of race dynamics and apartheid here, which he finds,
0: um, he sometimes I guess he wishes that we the conversation would just be more practical. There's this electricity shortage, and you know, we when can we stop talking about race and and we need to sort of resist uh, the desire to talk about that. And I don't know the more erring of how people really feel there's that paradox that nobody quite wants to trust in but people know i think that if you do air it it can lose its grip but the fear is that if you air it everyone will just kill each other and it'll be terrible so you don't Um, Mm -hmm. but just the last thing i'll say
1: from what you said is it one of the things through writing this book and, and living here is um I I think I got a real respect for, and also tried to show how, what a
0: lifelong journey it is, to face truths, to to say, to speak the truth, to you know, to to grapple with multiple ones. And I, whenever I come back and visit the USA, I'm struck that sometimes this is presented as something kind of easy, like if you decide to just start telling the truth, or if if you decide to just. Uh, You know, live your truth or 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 be real about the truth, then that decision can just hold you'll know what it is pretty easily, you know, it'll reveal itself to you. Um, And, you know, some of that, that discourse is more in kind of self help, but I think it really bleeds into a whole lot of other arenas and it it's such a, it is such a heroic and monumental task you know, just facing these types of truths and sitting with them and surviving them is as big as anything Elon Musk does Mm -hmm. or puts together or builds in a factory or, yeah. Yes,
2: yes. Um, This reminds me of, you know, one one of the key concepts of Latina theology um, Mm -hmm. is um, by the, the theologian ethicist, um, Ada Maria Isasi Diaz, who um, point for us the, the, the concept of lo cotidiano, the quotidian, And for her lo cotidiano, um, the, the horizon of the day to day is the site of resistance the site where we come to know reality, should say, come to know reality, uh, face it and take responsibility for it. And she said, any revolution that that changes the structures uh, first, that doesn't flow from lo cotidiano up, but that flows from the structures down will actually yield, leave oppression unchanged. And the cotidiano is not just, what we do every day is not um, simply to be replicated, but it's the site where we face ourselves and we face one another, where we love one another, where we um, tell truth to one another in that day to day. And and it strikes me that there's something about the miracle of apartheid, of the end of apartheid, where, where the cotidiano, the day to day, was was almost put on the on the back burner because we had these big world historical events to deal with and um and we'll deal with that later and so so you might have something to say about that but let me just uh, hmm. one more theme that i think struck me and i've not heard you talk about which is the um how much you speak about love in your book and um it is this is both um Danielle Steele novels, a <laughs> sort of escapist visions of love. And towards the end, we have one character who says, you know, this is this is this will be the time where I start dating, you know, this this uh, and, and find myself beloved. But also love in um you tell these really poignant stories of um or or this really poignant observation of um. White South Africans, Afrikaners who would um, leave, uh, who would visit the US and find themselves delighted by being included in the company of African Americans, of of Blacks in the US, um, and just to feel themselves welcomed into a Black community. It was this you you put it somewhere here that it was as if they had quenched a thirst. That they didn't know they hadn't had almost killed them and so there's love is everywhere as as the sort of in the story and and then and then the frustrated love the ways that um that the structures it is not sentimental but the way that the structures take away the capacity to love and be loved in a really oh. not sentimental way in a really um know, way that gets to to the heart of, of the question of what it what it even means to flourish, what it even means to experience a miracle, what it means for life to have any meaning, um, for society to work. I wonder what you might say about.
0: I'm I, I the scheme of love. <laughs> You're the only person who has asked me that, and I'm so touched by it because it was probably more than I even consciously did, but. It's always been amazing to me how huge a force I think love is in in various forms, and how big a question it is, and a quest, and a um, in life. But it's we won't read articles about politics, at least in the secular press, um, where where the wish to kind of feel love from your community, to be loved by a community, to um, have, it's not, it, it, it's it's impoverished sometimes, I feel, it's not there, and yeah, I mean, I developed, I guess I would call it, I sometimes have to call it a theory, but I really feel it's a belief, I, I believe it, that a lot of even very right-wing South Africans who, if you did one interview with them, would come off as quite
1: hardened um, here, that under that is quite a fluid uh, and complex, not
0: everybody, you know, some people are just yeah, not great, but like um, <laughs> quite a, quite a complex and 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 soft, I don't want to, it's not even that I have sympathy, but I just found it so true that you would sort of poke these people or spend quite a bit of time with them. And, and they
1: would, they would reveal that they, um, they had this deep yearning to know that
0: they were respected by ordinary black people or even loved by their, their their black maid who they may have often mistreated mm-hmm. possibly mm-hmm. defensively you know and i just got this such a powerful impression of that because you so as you say there's a professor that i know quite well actually and he told me this very revealing story where he said um i went to the united states to actually take a look at conservative um baptist universities because he wanted to with a bunch of white south africans start a white South African conservative university here, and an Afrikaner, so he was at Baylor, well, it wasn't Baylor, some, somewhere, anyway, so, um, and he said, I couldn't, I can't explain it exactly, but I was so, I just, as soon as I got there, all I wanted, all I wanted was to talk to the black hotel staff I would just cancel my meetings I would like avoid I would just it was all I wanted to do was was hang out with them and chat with them and I think I think he felt like he wasn't going to be judged by his accent he wasn't he wasn't he was he just had a kind of unboxing mm-hmm. um, that he may or may not have deserved but he did experience it and and he and it was like the, the it was like a He's accepting a glass of water. And only after you start drinking do you realize you were so thirsty or were almost dead. Right. Um, and and I saw that just over and over again. There was a a white man, a white um uh son of a very famous theologian in South Africa, uh Afrikaner, um, who started an all-white town in the desert um that exists. It's like white only. And but he used to sneak out at night
1: and go visit this township where he had realized that, be- that
0: his name was known. And he got this incredible satisfaction out of being known, being, being oh, you're back, Carl, you know? Um, and yet he had to conceal that under the cover of night. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a huge, 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 huge part. Maybe it's the theme of the book somehow or the the kind of center point or something is.
1: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. is and, that's, yeah. and that's for the Afrikaner characters, but also for the Black South Africa. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, for just the sense of um, the way that apartheid has, uh, and and the in the the afterlife of apartheid has conscripted um, the lives of Black South Africans into a struggle for justice that they are so tired of. Right.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, Dipoa told me that yeah. she had to conceal dating when she was a teenager to some degree because there was the feeling that. Um, that she got from her elders and the explicit message that if you date and flirt, you're wasting time because we're in an all-consuming struggle for justice. And they saw them as separate, at least passionate, romantic love. And, and they saw one as taking precedence. You know, when we when we win our freedom, when we fix the situation, when we achieve justice, then we'll have time to have the quote, but to love.
1: And mm-hmm. um and this was a terrible, tremendous burden. And her daughter,
0: and she had such a longing to love also. And um, and there's the sort of love between the mother and the daughter is a big part of this book. And it's very deep. I've rarely met a mother, daughter, had the opportunity to know a mother and daughter who have such a kind of, re, you know, textural, visceral kind of love. And,
1: but Malaika at times felt like she would only be loved if she, if her life turned out to sort of show that her mother's loss of her own
0: childhood and sacrifices and prevention from having love in her teens or the effort to prevent that that it would sort of come to fruition, it would be made, um, uh, you know, you eat bitter and then the, the next generation that it would all come to, to a glory in Malaika's life. And that, and, sh- and she really felt anxious about a whole lot of things about herself that they would be unworthy mm-hmm. of love almost for that reason for which she had a lot of compassion. She had a lot of compassion for her mother and she understood that, but it was also very burdensome. And it was also very hard for her to trust love directed at her by uh,
1: white South Africans Mm -hmm. because she felt probably justly in some cases that
0: she talked about the love. she, she, She went to an integrated school. She was sort of bust as a fourth grader. And she had this teacher that showed her like overwhelming love and like invited her to her house and was always praising her. And like, you know what you're supposed to do to build, but it was kind of a ton. And she said, I I just started to feel like this woman is, she's acting like she loves me for herself to, to, to experience a version of herself that loves a black child. Um, that's right. And I I, felt you know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation for for both parties, because maybe that woman really did love her, you know, and it was hard for her to be trusted. But. Right. I think that's one of the, the key things that, that struck
2: me about this book. You do have this, um, this eye and this, this touch for, for, for the interpersonal stories, for the, the, the tenderness of, of relationships and of, of, of wounds. And, and that, is not, you don't lose from view the structural issues because of it. Um, it is this. Mm. It is the intertwining of the stories of the personal and the structural that, um, that yields this very powerful narrative. And th- there's much more that I, I want to ask you about, but I wonder if we might, as, as a way of coming to a close, if you might tell us a bit, you, you speak a couple of times here about how South Africa is in some ways, um, uh, a, a compressed, uh, a sort of a time-lapse version, or, or the opposite of, of 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 the US, and um, that there's they lived very in a very short time what the US has been undergoing for a for quite a long time, and that they might tell us something. South Africa might tell us something in the US about where we're headed and
1: about our current moment. So I wonder if you might speak to that um, aspect um, of your work. Yeah, to re re narrate what I just said, to re describe it, please go no. ahead. <laughs> no, in the book I put it. You know, I, I I certainly think that if you're looking for a country
0: toward, I get frustrated in the U.S. I, it's not the Swiss. We we used to have this thing of like, why can't we be like Denmark? And I was like, Denmark's this tiny country. <laughs> many reasons, <laughs> many clear reasons, but. Um, but if you want to look at a country as an American mm-hmm. um, that has, the, I think the the most interesting parallels with the U.S. in terms of um, race history related to the Atlantic slave trade and um, you know uh, African Americans, Black Americans, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: white settlers here. Afrikaners, its its
1: its really the country to look at, and you know, it uh, had—and
0: i I say this really loosely, but I think there is something to it on two levels. One—one's a little bit more superficial and it's demographic, uh, which is that in terms of kind of who held the reins and when you would walk through like nice downtowns and stuff, like who um you know you what kind of bodies you would see and at the fanciest cathedrals and um it was like america in the 19th century kind of throughout the 1980s and now you have a a real dominance in the public square so on newspaper pages writing school curricula um not necessarily having the wealth of the country, but in terms of who's setting kind of the moral agenda, and um, it's it's people of color, which I think is not. I don't even think it, that's gotten to the point of proportionate inclusion in the U.S. But I think there's something also, and maybe you sense this, but I certainly always felt that the U.S. Um, had a redemption narrative as a country way more than like when I went and visited the UK as a kid. I was like, oh, this just seems like a place where people live and like they're not happy with how their garbage is collected. It's it's not maybe constantly chewing over these grand questions of have we lived up to our potential? Have we reached the promised land? Have we um, undone our chains? Have we, uh, you know, risen like as a people um, I up to our exceptional origin religion. yeah and i mean I, lincoln mm. talked about slavery as america's original sin all the time um, and and south africa has that it's it's recognizable to americans because it also has that quality of that national story both uh you know south africa was the Afrikaners were very um christian and calvinist but it just has that um that quality and that that's that sort of struggle to it and so I think it's such an incredible window and yet they're they're kind of like one miracle past us in (laughs) Mm -hmm. like a string a string of miracles that will sort of never cease but also never like cause the book to close yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so you're like okay if you want to like you know I feel like if, if you want to read, not what's going to happen in the U S but if you want to read like, okay, that miracle, which is true black inclusion, true inclusion of people in, of color, of different kind of Indian <laughs> background and stuff in, in academia as bishops and archbishops, um, running churches, uh, setting the agenda, writing public school curriculum, like that's that's the miracle that they achieved and are now in a situation of like, you know, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much more to say, uh, Eve. Yeah. And I just hope that um, those of us, those of those who are listening to us um, will pick up this book and uh, taste and see for themselves, uh, just the complexity and the beauty and and the wisdom, the wisdom of of your book. So, thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and um, I wish you all the best in what I said I would I would mention and have not yet that your book is coming out in South Africa. Um, so, congratulations on this new thank you launch, and um, all the best. Thank you again. Thank you, thank you. It was such a pleasure.
0: This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product
1: or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.